welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, thank you for tonight you've given us a chance to open your word, study it. Lord, would you convict our hearts, make them tender before you, ready to receive the implanted word with meekness. Um, Lord, I pray that these words would not uh, bounce off of hard hearts, but would be received by soft hearts. It's only your power that does this, and we ask for that power tonight through your Holy Spirit. Work on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Starting a new chapter. A man named John G. Patton. He was one of, he is one of my heroes of the faith. And he was a missionary to cannibalistic islands in the 1800s. Imagine that for a life calling. What a vocation. What do you do for a living? Well, I am a missionary to cannibals. Crazy. He was a man of conviction. He was a man of courage. He was a man of character. And God used John Patton to save thousands of men and women and children that otherwise would have never heard the gospel. What do you think propelled him to such a bold life, such a bold mission, such a willingness to go wherever he must go? How did he become so set on doing what God's will was for his life at whatever cost? Well, if you were to ask John Patton, he would say that nothing so clearly impacted his life more than the influence of his parents, his godly parents who loved them, particularly his father. Listen to this quote from Patton where he reflects on a time of prayer in his childhood with his father. He says this, How much my father's prayers at that time impressed me I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand. When my father, on his knees, with all of us kneeling around him in family worship, poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. And for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior. And we learned to know him and to love him as our divine friend. Here is the image of a father who lovingly and tenderly brings his children's knees before the Father. Without even saying the exact words, he demonstrates in his prayer how much he loves his children, an impact that John Patton never forgot. And tonight we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Ephesians, beginning with the fifth chapter where we've been studying the long list of humbling and very kind gifts that God gives us as Christians. The benefits are seemingly endless, and there's a lot of them. I would love to spend hours recounting all of these things to you. I cannot do that. 
But for the sake of brevity, the thing that we're going to be focusing on tonight is in light of becoming children of God, how do we live? God has raised every believer from spiritual death to life. And he has adopted us into his family because of his great love towards us. Now, even when I say the word father, we all have images that come into our mind of what a father is. Some of you have really great fathers at home and praise God for that. Some of you don't have good fathers at home. Some of you don't have fathers, period. And that is hard and challenging and that is a burden and a weight But when we think of our Heavenly Father, we have to fight constantly, even for those who've had good fathers, to remember that our Heavenly Father is much better, much better. And He loves us much more than any earthly father ever could. But we're going to dive into our text in Ephesians 5, and I ask you, please stand as we read our text tonight. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators... Of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Please be seated. There's a lot to unpack tonight, but looking at verse 1... Paul tells us that we are to be imitators of God because of something, because of our new identity. And what is this new identity? Well, it comes right out of our text, beloved children. And that's going to be the title of my sermon tonight. So if you're taking notes, you can format it this way, right? As beloved children, dot, dot, dot. And then we're going to fill out what that means. We're going to complete a sentence. Tonight I have four points, four ways that God calls us and encourages us to live in light of our new identity. And as we will see, this command does not come from a God who is authoritative and distant, but it comes from a God who's personal, who loves us, who cares for us, who is our Father. Point number one, as beloved children, walk in love. Walk in love. Our world has created some illusions of what love really is. Sadly, this is what often comes into our mind when we hear the word love. Is it a feeling? Is it an emotion? Is it an action? Does it mean taking care of ourselves instead of taking care of others? Is that love? In our text, we see a clear and shining example of what it means to love. And we see this in the person of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 2 with me. It says, And walk in love as Christ loved us. How did he love us? He gave himself up for us. Jesus, filled with love, demonstrated this love by giving up his life for our sake. He entered the world. He subjected himself 
to human authority, to sinful authority, to sinful parents. Imagine how hard that would be as a perfect child. (laughs) And he did it. And he willingly died on the cross in our place. This is the picture of love. Love is selfless, not selfish. It is self-denying, not self-seeking. Demonstrating this love came at great cost to Jesus. And therefore, when we know this, when we receive this, it should come with a great response of gratitude to him. And God delights in this type of life, in this type of sacrifice. And I love the the language that, that we see here in the text right after describing what Jesus did. It says that Jesus gave up his life as a fragrant offering, a fragrant offering. That's a really unique picture. And maybe as you hear the word fragrant offering, you can picture a scent that you really like. Maybe it's like this special candle. It's like I have this one candle and I only burn it on special occasions because I just love it so much and I don't want it to burn up. Maybe it's the smell of fresh laundry, uh, fresh lavender. I really like lavender. Um, Maybe it's the smell of a bonfire in the fall. Who doesn't love a good bonfire in the fall? Maybe it's the smell of a fresh cup of coffee in the morning. All of these things, when we hear, even just hear the word, we begin to think it. We begin to feel that emotion that the scent gives us. It's interesting how God has wired that into our brains. And there's, there's something that's, that's connected here about the way that God views a life lived in sacrifice. This is a glimpse of the emotion here that God has when we walk in love. God delights to see his children imitate him in living their lives the same way his son did. When they give up their lives for the sake of others. Psalm 116 verse 15 says something interesting. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Does God care? Does God love caring for his people physically? Does God love meeting their needs for food and clothing and shelter? Does God love even often delivering people from life and death circumstances, from saving a life in a car accident or from a tragic injury or tragedy or whatever? Does God love doing that? Yes, 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 he does. But there's something that he loves even more. God delights most when people are so in love with him that they're willing to give anything to go anywhere, to do anything, to risk anything for the sake of God. That is a pleasing aroma in the nose of God. And this is one of the reasons that John Patton's life is so inspiring to me. When I read about it and think on it, there was nothing that he wouldn't do for the Lord. It didn't matter where God called him. didn't matter what the assignment was. He knew that God had stamped his life as separated as sanctified so that God could use him in ways that he didn't use other people. John Patton willingly submitted to the Father in all things. And we see this example not just in a man, but in the person of Jesus, who willingly subjected himself to earth, to our life, to human pains, to difficulties, to uncomfortable situations, even to death. And death on a cross, and an excruciating death it was. Jesus held nothing back for our sake, and now he commands us to walk in love. 
We have become beloved children, and now we're called to imitate our Father by walking in love towards others. But our devotion to the Lord is not meant to stop there. Next, we are commanded to live in purity. Point number two, as beloved children, live in purity. If we read on in verse three, it says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And the Holy Spirit is communicating through Paul to us, to you tonight, that the lives of believers are meant to be distinct from the lives of non-believers. They're supposed to look different. They're not supposed to be isolated from non-believers, but they're supposed to be different. And here, Paul builds this argument, and he kind of builds it in three like expanding rings. We're going to look at those. He starts with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is pretty specific, although even within it, there's, there's a wide range of things that are going on here. But that word in Greek is pornos, which is where we get the word pornography. It doesn't just mean pornography. It means any sexual relations outside of marriage. So it's bigger than just that. But the thing is, is that when he starts here, he says, well, pornography should not be part of a Christian's life. But he, he, he adds to it. He expands. He doesn't just say that. He says, and all impurity. Believer, don't be tempted to think that just because you aren't doing this means you're not means you're fulfilling what God is saying here. Just because you aren't having sex or you aren't watching pornography means you're hitting the spiritual bar. That is not what is being said here. We are called to not be content with any amount of impurity residing in our heart. Not that it means that Christians never sin, but when we sin, we turn from sin. We ask for forgiveness from sin. We hate that sin. We ask for deliverance over it. If you struggle with sexual sin, this means to not be content to say, if I only go this far, then I'm okay. If I only do this much, then I'm okay. That thought does not come from a heart of faith. It comes from a heart of sin and deception. We have to be willing to cut off any channel, any avenue that leads us to sin. Many of you are on social media regularly And it's to the detriment of your purity. Maybe you need to stop watching YouTube or TikTok or stop being on Snapchat. Maybe you need to install a monitoring system on your phone, like Covenant Eyes, to help filter things that are coming onto your phone. Maybe you need to block your ability to download apps. Does doing these things cure sin? No, it doesn't. But it certainly begins to starve it. And more importantly, it shows that you are willing to take whatever measure necessary so that sin does not have control of your heart. doesn't matter. Whatever the cost, wherever the Lord has me go, whatever the Lord has me do, we have to be willing to say that. As beloved children, we are to live in purity. And maybe you genuinely don't struggle with sexual sin at all, in any way. Maybe you're hearing this and thinking, okay, that's not me, I'm good. Next command, please and thank you. Well, the truth is, we praise God for that, for lack of struggling in certain sins. But also within this verse, there's a wider call to action that Paul gives. He's he's clamping down tighter and tighter on on what it means to live righteously. 
He says that not only should we not be actively participating in sexual sin or entertain impure thoughts in our mind, but we should not even have an attitude of coveting within our hearts. What is coveting? Coveting is desiring something that you don't have. Right? So this is much bigger. It's kind of in the same vein, but he's just broadening and broadening. And the truth is that even if you don't struggle in any way with sexual sin, we all are tempted to covet. What's the first thing we do when we're scrolling on Instagram and we see our friends on vacation? We think, I wish I was on vacation. Or we see this person has this car, or these, this person has these jeans, or this person has this video game system, and I want that, and I want that, right? This is all a heart of coveting. But as believers, we have to go back to what God has done for us. And if we have truly put our trust and faith in Christ, we have become children. And not just children, but beloved children. As beloved children, is there anything that God has not given to you that you needed? Is there anything that God has prevented you having that wasn't for your good? Does God not have the ability to satisfy the deepest longing in your heart? The very core of who you are? Does Jesus not remind us in Matthew chapter 6 that our Heavenly Father knows every single one of our needs even before we speak them? What a comfort that verse is. Therefore, when we have a heart of coveting what other people have, we're sinning against God. Because what we're saying is, God, what I have isn't good enough. What they have is, and I want that, and I don't have that. That's a heart of sin, and it's a heart from the same vein that we've been talking about throughout this verse. Our minds are set on the things of the world and not on the things of heaven. Paul's given us an understanding, a pretty thorough understanding of what this sin in our heart looks like. But is that all that makes a believer distinct in this world? Just a different heart? Well, let's read in verse 4. Going on, it says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. As beloved children, point number three, speak in thanksgiving. Speak in thanksgiving. Last year, my brother, Drew, my oldest brother, moved from Nashville, Tennessee to Madison, Wisconsin. And after he arrived, he told me something that sounded kind of crazy to me. He's a nurse. He works with all different kinds of people from different backgrounds, different religious beliefs and convictions and all sorts of walks of life. And when other nurses got to know my brother, he earned himself a title. They began referring to my brother as the nurse that doesn't swear. The nurse that doesn't swear. That's that's crazy. You're like, just not swearing stands you out that much in that crowd? Crazy. In some crowds it does. And Paul reminds us again in this verse that not only should our hearts look different, but our speech should look different. I doubt many of you here tonight have been labeled as the kid who doesn't swear. Even you who go to public schools, probably doesn't happen. Maybe it has. Maybe it has once or twice. Probably not often. But you know, as well as I do, that the filthiness, the crude joking that Paul's talking about is always within earshot. doesn't matter where you're at. It's very common in our world. It doesn't take more than a few minutes on a bus ride or walking in the hallway to hear language that doesn't honor God. 
And before you hear me say, oh, well, I'm homeschooled, so I don't hear any of that, and my mom definitely doesn't make inappropriate jokes. (laughs) Well, I want you to look at the phrase that's inserted in between these two things in verse 4. He says filthiness, he says crude joking, and in between it, he says foolish talk. Foolish talk. Well, perhaps you're a person that likes to battle others verbally. You know, you want to prove that you're right, they're wrong. Maybe you just can't decompress. You can't feel like your day should be over until you spend an hour ranting to your two best friends about how hard your life is and how stressful your day was. Maybe you put off serious conversations and relationships. Any relationship that involves you having to truly share what's going on in your heart. Perhaps you talk in small group. Maybe you talk a lot in small group. But all of the things that you address are surface level and they're not really revealing what is within you. There are things that lead to distraction in group that they don't build the group up. All of these thoughts, all of these methods of speech fall under the category of foolish talk. Talk that is worthless, that is useless, that does not edify, that does not build up. Beloved children, speak in thanksgiving. Do you not know that there are much more fulfilling ways to use your words? And I get it. We, we fall into this trap where we assume, well, if I spend time talking about expressing my frustration, if I spend my words to express how frustrated and angry I am over something or how much this person's terrible, I'm going to feel better about myself and I'm going to feel better about my circumstance. But that's not true. There's a better way to use our words. And Paul addresses that. It is in thanksgiving. Giving of thanks. He says, instead of filling your mouths with wicked, corrupt, fruitless speech that's all around you, that we have all participated in, he says, let your mouth be filled with thanks. Use the instrument of your mouth that God has given you to offer back thanksgiving. To glorify God for what he has given you. For new life as a beloved child. For life in general. For the fact that you woke up today. Use your mouth. I love JT's prayer. How simple it was. Just thanking God for all of the normal things that we have in our lives that we never thank him for. Right? We need to do that. We need to use our mouths to thank the Lord. This idea is really cool too because it goes back to what we've been learning in Ephesians Four, where Paul says that we are supposed to put off our old self, we're supposed to be renewed in our mind, and then we're supposed to put on the new self. So Paul's addressing that, and he's giving an actual example. Stop speaking corruptly, wickedly, foolishly, filthily. Be renewed in your mind. Remember, you're children. You've been adopted. God loves you. You are beloved children. And then put on new speech. Thanksgiving. Put on new speech of thanksgiving. And this is just another dimension of how God redeems sinners. He doesn't just offer people a ticket out of hell and into heaven. He offers them life that's full on earth. He gives us new hearts with new desires. He gives us the ability to live righteously by the power of the spirit within us. He gives us the desire to live in accordance with our new nature as beloved children. God makes beautiful things 
out of ugly things. And he mends the broken things in our lives. And he makes whole what was once fractured. But does does God promise this work for everyone? Does God promise that he's going to redeem everything in everyone's lives? Do you here tonight have the ability to confidently say that God is working these things together? That God is redeeming these sinful and broken parts of your life? Paul provides his answer in our last two verses tonight where he tells us to think in eternity. Point number four, as beloved children, think in eternity. We'll start with verse five. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And if you take a second to look at this, we see the same repetition in verse 3. He, talk, he starts talking with sexual immorality, then he goes to impurity, and then he goes to coveting. Same progression. And this time it comes with a really serious warning. He says that the people who make practice of these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Does that mean if I've ever sinned in these ways, I have no hope of heaven? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that if your desires are inclined to these sins, instead of the putting off of them, if you desire participating in them more than you desire rejecting them, you should be concerned. Seriously. You are right to be concerned for the sake of your soul if you take more pleasure in these sins than in the death of them. Paul says that these people have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, meaning heaven, and they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, meaning the fruits of God in our lives here on earth. We can tell that the scripture is divinely inspired by what comes next in the next verse. Why? Because what do we do when our minds hear an indictment like this? When our minds hear you're guilty or you're not doing it right, what do we do? We instantly think, eh, okay, maybe that guy, but not me. Like, it's not that bad. Or we say something along the lines of, well, yeah, I have rough edges, and yeah, I sin, but God's got enough grace to cover that, right? We have that tendency within us. Even believers, we have that tendency. We justify ourselves. We say that it's not severe. We say that God will overlook it. And Paul addresses it. And the next thought, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do not be deceived by words that sound good, but don't deal with sin. Do not think that sin is something that we are supposed to take lightly. The thoughts of self-forgiveness after we sin are much more in line with the thoughts of Satan than they are the thoughts of God. Because the devil desires us to think as few of thoughts of sin, as few of thoughts of our judgment as possible. But God says to think in eternity. Think in eternity. But he doesn't just say this. He says this to non-believers, to those who are under the weight of judgment, who will one day experience the wrath of God. But he also, he speaks this to believers. This is for everyone in the room. Believers who are discouraged by your sin, 
who hate your sin, but you can't seem to be ridden of it, think in eternity. Know that one day, sin will be gone. It will be removed. You will see God face to face. You will behold your heavenly Father. And you will be welcomed based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus. As beloved children, we acknowledge that we are known by God and we are loved by Him dearly. And it is His love alone that propels us to desire righteous living. This is the only motivation. A life of begrudging, obedient service to the Lord is not a fragrant offering to Him. This is what we see in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. Which in reality, if you study the story... The older brother is just as prodigal as the younger brother. Because his heart is hard. He doesn't enjoy serving his father. A believer who lives his whole life. A person who lives their whole life going to church. Sharing in small group. Leading when called upon. Out of a spirit of begrudging obedience does not honor God. If you feel that way. Ask the Lord for forgiveness and he'll grant it. Repent, and he will offer you a new heart and a new life. A life that guards the mind, the tongue, and the heart because of love for our God is a fragrant offering to him. That is what we remember. I'd like to close my sermon tonight with one more excerpt from John Patton. It's just so impactful. And it's a human picture of human love, but I want you to listen to how tender the speech is, how kind the thoughts are of his father. This is him reflecting on the day when he left his father to become a missionary, to travel across the globe and to commit his life to bringing pagans to Jesus. It's amazing. Let this be your motivation. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if they had been but yesterday. The tears on my cheeks flowing as freely now as then whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying hat in hand while his long flowing yellow hair then yellow, but in later years white as snow, streamed like a girl down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could. And when about to turn the corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and I saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me, waving my hat and adieu. I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. 
He did not see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down. He set his face towards home and began to return. His head still uncovered and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze and then, hastening on my way, vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father as he had given me. Let's pray. Lord, this is a small glimpse, but it is a glimpse of the tender heart you have towards your children. And Lord, your word is clear that all who receive you as Lord become your children and receive the full blessing of adoption as sons and daughters. God, thank you for such kindness that you show us. Would you allow this to motivate us to righteous living, Lord, to put off the ways of the flesh and put on the ways of your Holy Spirit. Allow us to walk in accordance with our new nature. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.